Welcome to the second episode of the Danish National Biobank podcast. We sat down with Professor Anne Tjuneland of the Danish Cancer Society for a talk about the study's diet, cancer and health and its recent extension, the Next Generation study, about the sample collections and their research potential, and about what power we have as individuals to affect our risk of cancer through the lifestyle we choose. I'm a research leader at the uh, unit of diet, genes and environment and all my professional career at the Cancer Society I've been working with uh, prospective cohort studies and especially looking at uh, diet and lifestyle in relation to, to the risk of cancer and also the prognosis of cancer. I have been working at the Cancer Society for 30 years, actually. Uh, I started setting up prospective cohort studies uh, many years ago in the mid-90s. The original diet, cancer and health study is among the largest cohort studies conducted in Denmark. Tell us about it. Yeah, the diet, cancer and health cohort was a cohort that we uh, collected uh, in the mid-90s, 1993 to 1995, as a wish to, to uh, look more into the association between lifestyle and diet in relation to the development of, of cancer. And it was a random sample of the uh, general population between the age of 50 and 64 years of age. And uh, they were invited to come to our study center uh, where they filled out questionnaires about the diet and uh, lifestyle habits. And then we collected the blood samples, urine samples, fat tissue samples and nail clippings and measured the height and weight uh, on all these participants. And we recruited 57,000 uh, in the mid-90s. At that time, uh, we did not have so much collaboration with the National Biobank. It wasn't established when we collected the data in the first hand. But during uh, the years when we had uh, used the data and we also have used the DNA, we have established a collaboration where we can use the facilities at the uh, National Biobank in order to, to provide a better way to, to deliver out samples, small DNA samples from the project. Take us back to the beginning. How did the project come about? In the mid-90s, there was a lot of discussion what the influence of, of diet and lifestyle had on the risk of cancer. And most studies at that time were case control studies where you asked uh, cancer patients what they did before they, they got the cancer. And uh, and and that's kind of a skew uh, association you get when you have a, a, a control sample and you have the cancer patients. And there was a discussion that these kind of studies is not uh, getting you the real answer. What you need is actually studies where you collect the data, the exposure data and the uh, the information about diet and lifestyle and then follow up for years. And when the cancer develops, you can go back and look how was actually the lifestyle and the dietary intake before the cancer occurred. But of course, that kind of, of studies also need a lot of 
participants, since not everybody will get a cancer. So you will have to invite a lot of people, and then you can follow them over time. And when there is a, a certain amount of, of participants who develop, for instance, breast cancer, you can go back and look at the data you collected at the very beginning and, and compare with a control group. What were you aiming for beforehand, and how well would you say it turned out? Well, we have... Uh, of course, we have done a lot of stu- studies on the national uh, cohort, which is six, uh, 57,000 uh, Danish uh, people, uh, has been followed for these 25 years. But we also had a lot of collaboration with an, a European study called the EPIC study, where there are nine other European countries with similar studies. But the main focus for our own research on the old diet cancer health cohort has been on for instance, alcohol and the relation to breast cancer. It has been on the whole grain, the intake of whole grain in relation to, to, to cancer, especially colorectal cancer, but also cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Of course, we hope to get more answers uh, on the relation what between diet and what does a diet mean for your risk of getting cancer and also for the prognosis after a, a, a diagnosis of cancer. And I think we have come a long way both using the questionnaire data, but also the biological material that we collected at, at the very beginning. In the original Diet Cancer Health study, we uh, mailed questionnaire at that time. Uh, there was no internet when we started up the Diet Cancer Health study, so we have to mail everything. And, and they made an appointment uh, by telephone calling us. And then they showed up and uh, filled out questionnaires on dietary habits and lifestyle habits. And they were measured. We measured the fat uh, content in the people and the height and weight. And and then we took a lot of biological samples. We took blood samples. They provided a urine sample. And uh, they also have toenail clippings with them when they showed up at the center. And we uh, also uh, took a, a fat tissue biopsis. And what did you use the toenails for? Just to pick an example. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have 57,000 toenail clippings in, in the archives. And uh, well, the reason was mostly to study um, uh, trace uh, elements like selenium, for instance. There has been a lot of discussion whether selenium uh, actually protects you against uh, prostate cancer. And uh, there has been some study where they have measured in blood, but, but uh, toenail selenium is such a much, much more long-term uh, measure of exposure. So so there has been, there's actually four studies in the world who who have this toenail clippings and had looked at the relation to prostate cancer. And we just published our study, was was the fourth. And uh, unfortunately, there is no strong association between the level of, of selenium and the risk of, of prostate cancer. If you were to highlight something from the initial study, what would you say was the most interesting result uh, the study has uh, provided uh, more than 1,000 uh, scientific publications, so it's really hard to uh, just select one. But I think the, the studies where we contribute to the recommendations, uh, for instance, for the intake, the definition of, of how much whole grain you are going to eat every day in order to, to uh, have a lower risk of, of some diseases. I think this is the studies that we needed at at that time, and we asked us if we could get a better knowledge to provide the people how they should eat, how they should behave in order to reduce their risk of, of cancer. And uh, we've been working a lot in, in this area and see what, what can you do? How can we uh, 
prevent the number of cancers. The next interesting uh, field, I think, where we are, are working now is in order to, to detect the cancer early, uh, using the samples uh, to, to see can we actually uh, get an earlier diagnosis and then provide a better ch- chance of, of uh, getting cured for the cancer. And were there any surprise findings? Not really, but I think one of the most cited uh, publications from our studies actually the uh, related to atrial fibrillation and the intake of chocolate, that you are protected if you eat chocolate every day. So I think sometimes you can't really know what's coming up and what gets a lot of press, and sometimes uh, you think, okay, why this study? But, but that's the way it is. So usually the story is less alcohol, less of a lot of things we like, but with the chocolate, it's the other way around. Yeah, and also with coffee. That's two good examples that you're actually <laughs> allowed to eat a lot of. So what's the recommendation? How much should we eat and drink of the two? Well, uh, for the coffee, it's a, a medium intake, three to five cups a day, actually protects against several cancers and also type 2 diabetes. And for chocolate... You shouldn't eat so much that you get fat of it. So, so that's a kind of you have to level it. So, because obesity has also shown to be a, a, a strong risk factor for several cancers. So, you're allowed to eat chocolate as long as you're running while you do it. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> that's a good way to say. I think uh, the, it's it's uh, when you get in contact with so many people coming to your center and, and telling their stories, there's always uh, some very interesting uh, stories about people coming because, and the reason why they turn up to a, a cohort study like this, where they actually have to fill out questionnaires, use several hours of their time to do that, and then show up. And for the new study, also collecting fecal samples and 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 stuff like that. So I think uh, I think you you get the impression that people really like to to uh, help with the research, and I, I think that's that's a very nice feeling as a researcher. Moving on, will you tell us about the new extension of the study, the next generations? Yeah, uh, the original uh, cohorts, they were uh, invited between the age of 50 and 64 in uh, the mid-90s. So they were born between 1929 and 1946. And at some time, you think, how can we extend this cohort? It, It makes not really sense to go back to the original cohort since they are becoming quite old and many of them have died. So so then the idea occurred that we could actually go for the next generations. Also in order to, to get a more strong uh, measures of, of uh, how uh, some risk factors are, are going through the different generations. So we decided to set up a study where we invited the, the children and the grandchildren of the original cohort. Did you use the same method this time around, or does it differ from the initial study? It differs in a lot of ways. It's it's uh, kind of interesting to see how the method and the possibilities has changed during the years. If you go 25 years back and see how we were 
uh, we had to do it at that time and how you can do it now. Um, of course, uh, it's much easier. They still get a letter in the first hand, but then we can uh, approach them with uh, emails and SMS and they can book their on the on the web. And they also fill out the questionnaires on the web, which makes it much more easy in order to to uh, to secure that you have answers for all the questions if you're not able to go to the next page if you have an answer. And and you can also include more because if you don't uh, eat your yogurt, you don't have to ask uh, to uh, the fat content and and the sugary content. So so there's a lot of possibilities when you can do it on the web. So so we developed the questionnaires and expanded them a lot. Uh, compared to the old one uh, in uh, relation to the dietary habits and uh, and the lifestyle. And we also have could use other methods. We have a 24-hour recall for the dietary intake, which can be actually be, so you, you can use your phone to answer what did you eat yesterday in, in quite detailed manner. Has the study become more focused on genetics now that you have more generations? Of course, it is more because also the methods uh, in relation to genetics is much more. When we collected the, the original dark cancer and health samples in the mid-90s, you had very, very limited methods in order to, to go into the, the genes. Uh, now you can do a sequencing, actually, uh, if you're allowed to. But but you have so much so much better methods now compared to that time. At that time, we didn't know what uh, the samples should be used for. We just tried to make the sample and and store them in the best possible way, so we they were useful for as much as we could imagine at that time. So now you have so much more possibilities. What kind of research projects do you see? What potentials are you looking at? One of the, I think, the real interesting potential is looking at the microbiome, the gut microbiome, which is so much, there's so much hype about the microbiome in these days. And we actually managed to collect uh, 23,000 uh, fecal samples from these uh, participants in the next generations. And uh, to integrate those samples together with the human genome and the lifestyle and the medicine that the people are taking will give us a new uh, possibility to, to, to look at this interaction. Another thing is that having so many uh, samples of the microbiome, we will actually be able to, to look at, uh, at uh, associations to disease in a prospective way. Until now, most of the studies looking at the microbiome had collected data from people already having a type 2 diabetes or obese, but now we can actually... Collect. We have collected the data and we can follow people for years and then we could go back and look at the microbiome at that time when the, in the baseline and see was there any sign that this would uh, give you a risk of develop uh, disease over time. So, so I think that's really one of our strongest uh, possibilities with this new cohort. Who will be able to use these samples for research? This is a kind of infrastructure that uh, should be able for uh, for every researcher in Denmark to actually to get access to. We just finished the data collecting this uh, last month, so now we have, of course, to clean up the data and put them in a way on the web, so so they will be uh, able to get for other researchers. So it will be it will take between half and one year, 
and we have to to make some basic uh, publications on what what is actually this material, how is it collected, so you can refer to that in the future research. But but it is uh, an open infrastructure. That's the meaning with it. I hope to see a more personal prevention strategy. I hope that we can be taking all this data into account, that we will be able to to say to some people that for you it's really important to, to do this and for other people it's something else. Because what we do now is telling, we have this general how you should behave, how you should eat in order to prevent diseases, but but it would be really good to be get a more personal prevention approach. Um, and is that likely to happen? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Within the next five to ten years. Can you say a bit about the role of the Danish National Biobank? Yeah, when we uh, planned, uh, it was in uh, 2012, 11, 12, we planned how this study should be designed. Uh, we uh, immediately got into collaboration with the National Biobank since uh, the, the storage uh, possibilities is so much better there than it is at the Cancer Society. So, uh, so and they also uh, could help us with uh, actually uh, making the samples uh, and put them into smaller uh, vials. And uh, so, so there was, and again, as I said previously, that they have this automatic uh, retrieval system. So, so we would like to do uh, to to use take advantage of that. So we make this collaboration that every morning uh, the samples from the day before were collected here uh, and go into the National Biobank. The National Biobank also provides us with some upfront analysis, which uh, we could give back to the participants immediately, some uh, cholesterol, uh, CRP and, and uh, analysis like that. What are the advantages of using the automated systems? Well, the advantage is that you don't know which samples you will use for a specific study. If you would like to study breast cancer, you have to uh, identify the breast cancer cases and some controls, perhaps. And uh, for the old uh, cohort, we have students going, collecting these samples, picking everyone. And it could take actually weeks, a month to collect uh, six to 8,000 samples. Uh, in the uh, automatic system, you can do that very, very fast. And you don't need students to to work a lot in in these conditions so is it a time saver for researchers does it shorten the time spent yeah it will be it will uh, in the future it will shorten it because it's so much easier to to retrieve the samples any other advantages well i i think uh, One advantage is that we have collaborated with experts that uh, are experts in something that we are not experts in. So, so this uh, collaboration can give the best uh, for everybody and the best uh, um, taking care of the samples, I think. so. Will we see a lot of collaboration at this point? There will be, of course, a day-to-day collaboration with uh, people from outside coming and asking for for samples where we have to collaborate on retrieving the sample in the biobank and uh, putting them together with our data that we have here. But there will, I also foresee that we could have some good collaboration on scientific questions. Uh, that could be because we have this in 
house knowledge about the samples, about the data that we have, where we could, as researchers, collaborate on, on uh, new studies. How these collaborations look? We together design a new study where we can uh, take advantage of the knowledge we already have in-house of the samples and the data that we have so, so new studies can occur. This is just the beginning. Any visions of the future for this type of research? I think it will be a very important area of, of research because we really need uh, to get to the next level of these uh, prospective cohort studies. And I think we have the samples to, to do that with this study. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more from the Science Treasury of the Danish National Biobank.